Kelly. Josh. Listeners, welcome to this episode of Indubitably. Today, we're going to be talking about tourism and its effects on economies, people, and the environment. We've had this topic on our to-do list for a while, but given the fires in Hawaii, it seemed like a fitting time to have a conversation about the sorts of impacts that tourism can have on popular destinations and the responsibilities that we as tourists have when considering how our presence and actions can affect the places we travel to and the people that call these places home. Yeah, and obviously with the fires and aftermath of the fires in Maui, we're faced with very immediate and a direct impacts and how tourists now can exacerbate some of the issues we'll discuss in this episode. But even in times where we don't have a pressing disaster, the cumulative effects of tourism on hotspot destinations around the world are equally important in defining the identities of those regions. And those impacts are not necessarily bad. 10% of jobs worldwide are related to tourism. And certain places like Aruba and the Maldives owe over 30% of their economies to tourism. So we have places where it seems tourism is having negative impacts. We have places that probably only exist because of tourism. So the question is, should you be traveling to these places? If not, where should you be traveling to? Or maybe more importantly, if you are going to be traveling, how should you be doing it? Or like me, you can just opt to mostly stay in your house. And that hurts pretty much nobody except yourself. <laughs> you could travel through Netflix or books. Uh, books, indeed. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. Josh, what is the most recent trip you took and best trip you ever took? Well, I think our long time or medium time listeners will know I just got back from Turkey. And then last year I went to Italy and I would have to say my trip to Italy is up there with one of the best um, that I've taken. How about you? you? When was the last time you escaped from your, from your room? The last time I set foot on any soil that was not American was on a cruise in 2014 that went up through Alaska and had a final stop in Victoria, British Columbia. Cruise ships. It's funny you bring up cruise ships because that's one of the topics we're going to be talking about when we examine the impact of tourism. We'll cover environmental impact, where I'll get to tell Kelly she's a bad person for taking a cruise, as cruises contribute to environmental degradation and climate change. Bad Kelly. We'll also cover the cultural impact that tourism has. And I think we'll be kicking it off actually with the economic impact of tourism. I'm guessing you're going to find a way to call me a bad person with all three of these categories today. Yeah, and we'll just ignore the trips that I've taken so I can be the good guy today. Yeah. Last time I was on a plane was like five years ago. Last time you were on a plane. But mine was an e-plane. Oh, I'm sure it was. <laughs> Solar powered plane. And I think it's important to note before we get started here, economic impact, cultural impact, environmental impact. In a lot of ways, these things are related particularly in tourist destinations like Hawaii, uh, you brought up Alaska, a lot of times local communities' culture can be very directly tied to environment, for example. And at the same time, a lot of those local communities might also have an economic dependency on the tourism that comes through there. Mm -hmm. All right. So why don't we start with that economic impact? And like you said, I think economic dependency is a, is a fairly accurate term. The overall contribution that the tourism industry makes to certain places like the Maldives, 32.5% of the Maldives economy is tourism. Aruba, 32%. The British Virgin Islands, 25%. The US Virgin Islands, 23%. So there's plenty of examples of places around the world where huge portions of their economy are dependent on tourism. Is this where I get to bring up that all of those places either were or currently are colonial holdings? Speaking of colonies, our premier example for this episode, I think, is going to unfortunately be Hawaii, 
And I believe that a lot of Hawaiians might see themselves as a region that is colonized by the United States currently, rather than being included on equal footing with other states of the union. And it's hard to say chicken and egg, whether these areas are economically dependent on tourism because they were colonial holdings of colonial powers, or if it's just that they are, you know, small island nations that don't have a lot of domestic industry. So tourism really would have been the only viable option anyway. But if there is no tourism, these areas would have significant economic struggles. Right. So to look at Hawaii specifically, in 2019 alone, Hawaii welcomed over 10.4 million visitors who spent a total of $17.75 billion during their stay, billion with a B, which is a pretty big number that supported 216,000 jobs across the state. And we'll get into the actual analysis of what those jobs are momentarily, but what other industry in Hawaii could support nearly a quarter million jobs, if not for tourism? Right. And we can look at other examples as well. Like, let's be real. Las Vegas would literally not exist without tourism. It's in the middle of the desert. There is nothing there except for casinos, gambling, buffets. And tourism. And probably some like legit air conditioning. (laughs) And magic shows. Don't forget Penn and Teller. (laughs) Sure, sure. Well, besides magicians and HVAC technicians, what kind of jobs are actually supported by the tourism industry? So actually, to to give the scale, first off, 10% of jobs worldwide are related directly or indirectly to tourism. Places like the Caribbean Islands that rely heavily on tourism for employment, more than 90% of jobs in Antigua and Barbuda in 2019 were from the tourism sector, 90%. And those jobs could be anything from retailers, restaurant workers, transportation industries, entertainment facilities, hospitality workers, etc. Everybody you would come into contact with on your vacation. I used to work in hotels. As a... A front desk agent, and then I worked in the sales office. How is that? It's not great. It's <laughs> it's a service industry job. Uh, the people who work in these jobs, especially when you're dealing with tourism in places where you have like American dollars making people feel very entitled to a certain level of service from the non-American people who are staffing the hotels and the restaurants. It's a fraught, disrespectful industry a lot of the time. I'm here on my vacation. I demand to be treated a certain way. Yeah. Americans are, are we going to get into that? Are we going to talk about how Americans are just like bad travelers, the ugly Americans? We will talk about that later, but to preview, I'm not sure if you were following uh, last month, there was a guy that was caught carving his name, Ivan and Haley into the Coliseum. And before this guy, Ivan was identified Everybody was like, he's for sure American. Makes sense. But. But. He's not American. He turned out to be British. Let's go. Okay. British people, I think, are like just a notch below Americans on the international respect scale. (laughs) (laughs) I was just happy he wasn't ours. This time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. So pretty obvious that tourists have a tendency to treat the people who work these jobs not great, but also just being realistic here, the amount that they're getting paid to do those jobs and treated not great is also not great. Right. You talked about Hawaii spending about 17, almost $18 billion in 2019. And you have to ask, how much of that actually went to that 216,000 people who are working those jobs? Probably not much. Most of the time it goes to the corporations, the major like hotelier conglomerates that run most of the resorts around the islands and whatnot. And very few of those dollars really make it into the hands of the people performing most of the work and living in those areas. And that's that's true. But I think it's important as we have this conversation about economies 
to have it in a real world sort of way, meaning, yes, the tourism dollars, there's so much of them and they don't make it where they probably should. But if we were to take those away, which is sort of what we'd be suggesting here, what would we replace it with? What are the alternatives to a place like Hawaii or Las Vegas? Universal basic income. Hey, we have an episode about that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but somebody has to make the money to get the universal basic income funded. Mm, I know. We have to think about the real world impacts of a lot of these discussions. And there is an analysis of these issues that say, well, the people who built the hotels, who make sure that they're staffed and run, do invest a lot of the capital that warrants they need a return on their investment. And it makes sense that they make more money than the people who are like folding towels at the cabana. And the other thing that's interesting, uh, Hawaii might not be the best example here, but if you look at other tourist destinations around the world, somewhere like Bali, for example, or, or a place like Bangladesh, which actually has the most number of jobs per tourist that comes to the country. Bangladesh creates nine jobs for every one tourist that visits the country. And the dollars that are being brought into Bangladesh by people from places like the United States, Canada, England, what have you, are just so much more valuable than the local currency that it does inject wealth into areas that would not be able to create wealth otherwise. But this is a tricky one because even though there might be an injection of capital into an area, at levels that other industries could not match. At the same time, there's also kind of macro scale impacts of that when it comes to gentrification. So a good example of that would be Airbnb. And it is significantly more profitable for property owners in places like Rome, in places like Greece, for example, to rent out their homes through Airbnb to tourists coming in than to rent them to locals. And this pushes people who might have lived in a particular town, a particular area for, you know, their family might have been there for decades and starts to push them further and further away from their homes. So that injection of capital seems good, but not necessarily. And that's happening globally. That's in pretty much any destination where you could travel. And there are even examples of Airbnb making it difficult for communities even in the United States, which maybe aren't affected by some of the other tourism woes that we'll be discussing. But a big area where there's an impact would be New Orleans. And there's been a lot of discourse about how that's driving locals out of the community. And it's pernicious. And I have one booked for my stay in New York. (laughs) In case you wanted further evidence that I'm part of the problem. Cruise ships and Airbnb, Kelly. Disappointed in you. Next year, you're going to find out that my car runs on petroleum. (laughs) And all of those services, all of the places where people stay, where they eat, the airports they fly into, the roads, their double-decker buses or whatever go on, all of that requires a massive influx of infrastructure development, which might link hospitals or other public resources. Or destroys things like farmland and community infrastructure that existed prior to tourism. So that's a double-edged sword. Infrastructure is an argument, I think, in favor of tourism in some ways. If you are living in a place and you didn't have a hospital before, but now to deal with tourists who might get sick, might get injured, a hospital is built, you as a local would benefit from that as well. You as a local would benefit from roads, from infrastructure, utilities, etc. So there are definitely ways that quality of life can be improved as a result of tourism dollars. Again, as we're seeing in Hawaii, those ostensibly public resources like roads are getting overrun by tourists. So it's harder for the locals to even access the resources they, they otherwise probably could if they had just had an infrastructure program that was devoid of a tourism motivation. Obviously, we're talking about tourism. There's hundreds of places around the world that are insanely popular tourist destinations, and they're all going to have different positive and negative impacts of it. But a lot of these places are small. The really cool shit is isolated in a really small area. 
And so when we do talk about infrastructure, I'm thinking of a place like Venice, tiny island, not a whole lot of room. And when you have millions of tourists visiting every year, no matter how much money you have to put into infrastructure, you only have so much space to do it. And at a certain point, it is going to be net negative. Yeah, in Venice, there's even less space every year because it's sinking. There is an argument there for Venice, too. It would sink whether there was tourism or not, to be fair. But like I said, Italy was one of my trips uh, that I visited last November. I was one of those people. Here's your chance to tell me I'm the bad guy, Kelly. I was one of those people that that did visit Venice. And there's St. Mark's Basilica there, which is sinking. And they actually are literally building a wall to keep the ocean out. It's a glass structure to try and protect it. And that cost $5.3 million. And I'm wondering, without tourism, where would that $5.3 million come from? Or what motivation would there be to even bother saving it? Right. So it's easy to look at the very direct and obvious downsides of tourism, but maybe the benefits are a little bit harder to see, but equally real. Again, double-edged sword. One thing, though, I think is is common across every tourist destination, though, that is probably a negative thing is it certainly increases the wealth gap. We did say the majority of the money goes to the people who own the property, the people that own the businesses, the hotels, etc. And that gap is exacerbated in places that have tourism. Hawaii, for example, fun fact, has the highest per capita number of millionaires in the United States, and also the highest rate of meth users in the United States. I think we need to adjust your definition of what constitutes a fun fact. (laughs) All right. Interesting fact. (laughs) Definitely. But it speaks to the reality of the situation, which is there is so much money coming into this area. And if you want to own property, you need to have a ton of money to be able to handle the gentrification that's happening. Mark Zuckerberg got into a argument with Hawaii trying to basically buy an island there. And at the same time, though, on the flip side of the scale, you have people who are being driven out of their homes, driven to the streets. And, you know, as a result, we see things like meth use, for example. It's striking in places like Hawaii that have a meth problem or Have you been to Athens? I've heard that the pickpocketing in Athens is extremely aggressive. There are all these areas that seem so reliant on tourism at at all. And yet they have these issues that are really striking public ills that affect people who live there and prevent some tourists from wanting to visit there at all. And it's a wonder why they don't have more of a handle on, you know, harm reduction when it comes to drug addiction or uh, social programs that steer people away from a life of crime in a way that helps the people, their citizens that live there, but also make it more attractive as a tourist destination. So the question is, though, okay, if tourism has these harms, we would like to reap the benefits of tourism without the detriments of tourism. What's the alternative? Is there another industry that could replace this behemoth that is travel? Well, in Hawaii in particular, there is a substantial industry around foods that cannot grow anywhere else in the United States. I think they're the only area in the U.S. where coffee grows, and they're known for things like pineapple, sugarcane. There is a demand for those goods, and more and more of the land that might be dedicated to tourism could be converted into unique agricultural hubs across the islands. All right. Well, as much as you drink coffee, though, it would take a lot of coffee beans to make $17.75 billion a year. I would do my part, though. I would drink a lot of coffee. (laughs) For the Hawaiians. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe the answer here comes not necessarily in switching industries, but As we look at some of these problems, we do have countries trying to find ways to harness the positive impact of tourism without the negatives. And I think one of them, if if the issue that we're pointing to is literally just a wealth gap, maybe government's forced redistribution of revenue is a solution. 
like we talk about how much money the corporations make from this, but a good percentage of those billions of dollars do go to the government. Are we in the upside down? Did you bring up a socialist proposal before I did today? Oh my gosh, you know that I'm socialist, but I can't be socialist on the show because you always take it first. So I have to be the capitalist. Well, this time, I guess I have to be the capitalist because what the <laughs> hell just happened? <laughs> I got there first. I didn't I didn't warn you I was going to do it. Damn it. <laughs> but things like taxes on flights, things like entry fees, et cetera, those can fund infrastructure projects like we talked about. It could fund social programs like we talked about to help deal with some of the negative impacts of tourism. So potentially governments can be more aggressive taking some of the revenue that corporations are currently pocketing, redistributing that back to the people, that could be an alternative. So we keep tourism, but we ensure that the money is split more evenly. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the areas that have increased tourism taxes, like lodging taxes and whatnot, tend to pass those costs on to the consumer and they don't tend to increase hourly wages for service workers. So another good example of how they could address this issue, like the city of Seattle does, which is I'm not a big Seattle fan, is have uh, an increased minimum wage that is far above the national average. And that is something that areas where there is a heavy amount of tourism could absolutely implement. Mm -hmm. And so this is where usually me being the realist and capitalist and you being the socialist, I point out to you. Yeah, sure, Kelly, that's all fine, but this is the real world and it would never work. And I think the criticism here of governments trying to take it to corporations, when we have corporations coming from developed nations into less developed countries, a lot of times the corporations have a lot of power. So things like minimum wage, things like environmental standards, when you have businesses like Nike going into Bangladesh, they say, if you start to raise those standards on us, we'll just take our business elsewhere. Here, I think there's a unique advantage that these destinations have, which is there is no other Hawaii, right? There is no other Venice. In this particular instance, I think that the destinations have bargaining power over the corporations. There is only one Hawaii, there is only one Maldives. But if you're owning, a major hotel chain like Hilton. They're all just a bunch of islands and they all look a little bit different, but they're all islands. And it's just another cache of properties in a specific area. And ultimately you can afford to maybe not invest in one if they're going to be big assholes about how much tax you have to pay. I think that the negotiating power lies with the Bali's of the world or the Maldives of the world. Because if we say $17.75 billion in profit, and the government of Indonesia says, we're going to raise minimum wage, and now you're only going to make $15 billion a year instead of 17.75, it would be hard to see the Hilton hotel chain saying, no, you know what, we're out. We're not going to be here anymore. And if they do, I'm sure the Marriott hotel chain would be perfectly happy to come take their place for $15 billion. There are measures that municipalities, states, countries themselves can can implement to try to counterbalance the effects of tourism. For example, Airbnb didn't constitute being a normal hotel for a long time when it came to how it was regarded by the government. And so lodging taxes weren't applied. But now, basically everywhere you book an Airbnb, you're subject to the same hotel tax that you would if you were booking something at like I don't know, the Marriott. Right. And I, I think Airbnb is a really good example. And I think in general, the trend is towards governments cracking down on corporations and just cracking down on tourism in general, putting caps on the number of tourists that are allowed to enter the country, allowed to enter specific areas. We're going to be talking about environmental concerns, cultural concerns later. And various countries are also putting limitations on tourism in those cases as well. And so I think that countries are starting to realize the power they have and also the negative impacts that tourism can have on their regions and trying to find ways of balancing out the economic influx that they could generate, the jobs that it can generate, while avoiding some of these bigger concerns. I think the real big takeaway from this discussion 
is if you get scammed or someone pickpockets you on your trip, don't go asking Josh for any sympathy. <laughs> I do think we have to say though. So so we're talking about economic impacts generally, but at the beginning of the episode, as we pointed out, this topic is obviously pertinent right now because of what's happening in Hawaii. For those of you that might not be familiar, the fires that ravaged regions of Maui, the after effects of that and and what the Hawaiian people are dealing with. And I think that it's a very different discussion when we are in the middle of a crisis versus when we were in sort of day-to-day life of what a a country that is defined by tourism looks like. So a, a conversation about tourism in Hawaii now would have to be very different than that same conversation even a month ago. But there are some consistencies within that conversation because we've been hearing for a long time now from specific folks in Hawaii that tourism is a big problem and there's been an active discouraging of people traveling there. And every issue that's been brought up by the Hawaiian people in terms of overcrowding, resources, infrastructure, etc., before we have something like these fires or in other places that deal with tsunamis, for example, hurricanes in places like Malaysia, for example, you know, any number of natural disasters that are becoming increasingly common. Any of the problems that we point to before this become exponentially more serious when we're in the midst of a natural disaster or any kind of disaster. When you have tourists coming in and taking up lodging and clogging the roads and falling onto a piece of coral and going to the emergency room, that's one less person who actually lives in that community who gets to access that resource altogether. But in the context of the fires, where there are people who are displaced and and hurt and have very few resources altogether, and tourism is making it even harder to access those resources, that seems like a very big problem. So we're having this larger discussion on whether or not tourism has positive impacts, negative impacts, how maybe we can take advantage of the influx of money that it does offer locals, their opportunities to spread culture, which we'll talk about in a second. So in principle, this is a debate that we can have. Is it good? Is it bad? How do we regulate it? But right now, considering the situation in Hawaii, in Maui, um, I think it's important to realize that it's a very different discussion. It's not really a, is it good? Is it bad? It's a pretty definite tourism is bad at this moment, point blank. It looks pretty callous when people go to Hawaii and film their cute little TikToks and basically are there for self-serving relaxation or escapism purposes. When you're that close to this level of human tragedy, this is the deadliest wildfire in U.S. history, or at least for like the last 100 years. Last count I got was 111 people died. So going there on vacation, it's just performatively evil. Is that too strong a term to use? No, I don't think so. And I came across an interview with Jason Momoa, uh, the actor who is a native Hawaiian. And in his Instagram posts, he wrote pretty definitively, Maui is not the place to have your vacation right now. He said, do not travel. Do not convince yourself that your presence is needed on an island that is suffering this deeply. And kind of to the point you were making earlier, Kelly, he said that the Hawaiian community needs time to heal, to grieve, to restore. And what that means is that they need less visitors on the island taking up critical resources that have become extremely limited. And that could be things like housing, that could be things like hospital beds, etc. And this isn't necessarily related to tourism, but I think it speaks to the larger issue of people viewing this as a commodity that they get to exploit, is that people are now going in and trying to purchase a bunch of land because it's going to be really cheap while it's still smoldering. and. Then they have the foothold literally on the island for when it does recover to build homes or build 
tourist destinations and further the exploitation of people who are hurting right now and will continue to hurt in the future. I do think it's related, you know, and you said it kind of anecdotally uh, at the beginning of the episode, but people who interact with service workers or for the purposes of this discussion, specifically workers in the tourist industry, see them as lesser. They see them as somebody that owes the tourist something because the tourist is spending money there. And that same attitude, I think, carries forward where you have people, well, you know, I booked this trip months ago, or I've spent so much money to get to Maui that I'm not going to cancel it now, even if you have literally lost family members, people have died. I watched another interview with a Hawaiian woman who was saying the very same waters that our people died in just three days ago are the same waters that the very next day tourists were swimming in. And so that attitude of because I spend money, you don't matter anymore, that permeates tourism in general, I think is exacerbated in a situation like this. And I do want to be mindful that there are well-intentioned people who would travel to Hawaii, who maybe this is their one big trip they're going to take. Maybe it's the one trip they're ever going to take of this magnitude. And it would be very disappointing to cancel plans like that. But I think if you're comparing the types of harm that are experienced, if you don't get to take your dream trip versus the exploitation of people who have been marginalized so much throughout history and continue to be marginalized, I'm not as sympathetic in this context as I would be towards other plans getting canceled. And it's not just Jason Momohoa who's who's spreading this message local Hawaiian officials have also requested people on non-essential trips to leave and asked others to cancel their plans to travel to Maui. And, and this is despite the fact that the loss of tourism is going to be a significant shock to Hawaii's economy. And that's why we should have strong public resources to help economies weather a storm such as losing tourism revenue for a period of time and helping take care of people. Universal health care is never a bad idea. That's a, a good way to avoid passing costs on to the, to the average person. We, we said it kind of jokingly earlier, but a lot of Hawaiians see themselves as a colony rather than a part of the United States. And it it's kind of hard not to say that they've got a bit of a point when things like this happen, like Hawaii is not a developing country. Hawaii is liter- is the United States. And so the idea that a state in the United States can be l- seemingly left to its own devices in a situation like this is a little bit wild. If you ever wish to travel to Hawaii again in the future or for the first time even, The best thing you can do in the short term is to ensure that Hawaii makes it through the current struggles it's experiencing because of the fire. Ultimately, if you can afford a trip to Hawaii um, that you now cannot take because we're telling you not to take it, you can probably also afford to kick a few dollars towards a charitable cause that's helping respond to the issues as a result of the Maui fire. We have a few organizations that have been mentioned across many sources as being the preferred area where people can focus their donations. We have the Hawaii Community Foundation, the Maui Food Bank, the Maui United Way, the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, and the American Red Cross. These are all really, really great places that you could dump a few dollars. And then when you do ultimately travel to Hawaii, you know, five years down the road, just drink a few less, you know, Mai Tais and call it good. In the midst of a larger discussion about tourism, now is not the time to travel to Hawaii. And I think that the same concept would apply to any of these popular destinations when they are going through a crisis. And again, unfortunately, given the nature of some of these smaller destinations that are more in tune with the environment, it's something that happens a lot. A lot of them are islands. A lot of them are coastal. We've talked about New Orleans. We've talked about Bali tsunamis, hurricanes, etc. So I think something to keep in mind, this is not going to be a a one-off 
instance. But with you bringing up donations, Kelly, to go back to the larger conversation about tourism as a whole, I suppose it's my turn to be the jaded one again. And I do have to wonder if the only reason people would potentially care enough about Hawaii to donate is because they've been there as tourists. Are we going to interrogate the motivations behind these donations if those donations get the job done of helping restore the people and the places we're talking about? Well, yeah, my point is that in a larger conversation about is tourism good or bad, if we were to try to squash tourism, lessen the number of people that visit these places, then in the instance where we do have an emergency, are we also lessening the number of people who would care enough to donate? Are, are we shooting ourselves in the foot in, in the good times by turning people away, by then making them more likely to assist us when we, when we turn to them for help in the times where we need it? I see what you're saying. I feel like the pull of Hawaii is so strong that even if people do heed our advice and not travel there, they still like the idea of Hawaii enough to want to make sure that it survives this. The possibility that they could travel there someday, sure. I don't know why I'm deciding all of a sudden not to be cynical about the motivations of people. But that allure of Hawaii that you bring up leads nicely into the next conversation I think we want to have here, which is the idea of culture. The Hawaiian culture is known around the world because of tourism, because people from around the world visit it. If Hawaii wasn't a destination for people, would the Hawaiian culture be as prevalent on the other side of the globe? Likely not. But the way that the Hawaiian culture is prevalent around the globe is typically like a cartoonish version of Hawaiian culture. It's like tiki bars and dashboard hula dancers. And if you see any of the representations of hula for example that are in media it's in no way accurate compared to how actual hula works how the actual moves of the dance work and we're fed what we consider to be quote-unquote hawaiian cultural influence as a result of the military occupation for starters in the mid-century like spam era of hawaii but also all the tourism itself has, you know, everybody comes home with a puka shell necklace and they're like, I experienced Hawaiian culture. And it's, you exploited Hawaiian culture is really what happened. But I think that's true of, of anywhere. So it brings up an interesting question. I'm not going to say that 100% the authentic culture of tourist destinations is spread, but is a watered down culture better than having that culture completely die like how many indigenous populations around the world indigenous art dances languages etc just don't exist anymore because nobody had a reason to care about them is it better that a as you put cartoon version of hawaiian culture still exists and will probably always exist compared to I can't even bring up an example, and that's kind of the point. Like any number of indigenous cultures that we don't even know about because we didn't have a reason to care about them. If I, this is a, an extreme hypothetical, if I came from a marginalized culture and my options were either my cultural practices, heritage, knowledge, art, craft, dance, etc., either were not no longer in existence, you know, kept in a museum at, at best, or um, it could only persist as long as it was heavily imbued with like commercialism and being misrepresented globally. I would find that to be kind of a form of extinction of the culture as well, um, and, and more exploitative than just letting the culture die. But that's just me in the hypothetical bubble. So I would love to hear from people who actually experience this cultural background and what they would prefer. Mm -hmm. If you were to take, uh, maybe a good example would be Thai culture. You and I both visited Thailand. 
and at a very superficial level, I think we've been exposed to Thai culture. We know some of the architecture, probably a couple greetings. Thai food is very popular, even if it might be Americanized, the version of it that we eat. But I, in a in a weird sentimental sort of way, care about Thailand or feel a connection to Thailand that I don't feel to Vietnam, for example, where I've never been. I, I don't think that that's completely useless. I don't think that my connection to Thailand, even if it is mostly superficial, is not is is worthless. I, I've been to a few countries around the world that I have no cultural background and I go as a temporary interloper and I enjoy my experiences and I learn stuff. And I suppose that is the extent of my connection to those places is as a, an intruder, an observer. But I, I don't think that my identity gets to be tied to those places because I haven't earned it. I'm not saying identity, but let's say, for example, there was a fire in Mongolia. Same same situation that we have in Hawaii right now. And you were listening to a podcast and they were to list some Mongolian charities that you could donate to. You having a connection to Hawaii, having been there, would you be more or less likely to donate to Mongolia? I'm assuming you've never been there versus Hawaii or versus Thailand. You don't know about my time on the steps of Mongolia? <laughs> no, I don't. No, I see what you're saying there. I think that the um, familiarity of it might be a more apt way to describe it rather than... I think connection is just such a strong term um, because I think it implies a partnership. Like that place is as reliant on me as I am on it. And maybe it is when it comes to charitable contributions. So there's a reality in terms of the spread of culture from places like Hawaii externally around the world. Maybe it's superficial. Maybe it'd be better to have it authentic or nothing. And then there's also, I think, though, tourism allows for the maintenance of culture within the borders of these places. So what I mean is, let's assume we've brought up alternatives. Let's assume Hawaii said, okay, Tourism is bad. We're going to replace our tourism industry with a traditional industry. I don't know. We're going to build malls and banks and whatever people do to make money now. The stock market. Nobody creates anything anymore. They drive U Ubers. Insurance companies. <laughs> so we're going to get rid of everything tourism related and we're going to replace it with, quote unquote, like a traditional economy. Hawaiians now no longer have a way to practice their own culture like name any major capitalist hub or city in the world that has a culture i think you maybe inadvertently just pissed off a bunch of new yorkers new york has no culture oh they would beg to differ i'm sure yeah spending sixty five hundred dollars for a flat in the middle of the city is not culture. Well, define culture. Do you mean an indigenous culture, a, cu a culture that's been there since human civilization has been there? You brought up hula, for example, you know, something that happens at a luau, which tourists pay a lot of money to go to a luau, to eat traditional Hawaiian food, to get that experience, to watch hula, which I think a lot of times is very authentic in Hawaii. If I lived in Hawaii and I wanted to open up a dance studio, to carry on the tradition of hula, to carry on the specific type of dance, I can make a profit doing that. I can make a living, maintaining an authentic version of Hawaiian culture because people will, tourists will pay to come and see that. If tourism goes away and is replaced with banks and financial sectors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that business is no longer profitable. I can no longer make money continuing my culture and that culture dies you're saying that the culture is dependent on having financial interactions being involved in the marketplace somehow in order for it to survive i think a really good example of that the uh, orthodox jewish communities that spring up around the world they do have specific industries and stores built around keeping kosher or obeying specific laws of the Torah, but then they also have 
regular people who work at their like markets and banks and computer programmers and whatnot. And they don't necessarily have to like market their culture to outsiders in order to sustain it. But there probably are globally more Orthodox Jews than there might be Native Hawaiians. But I think that what I'm saying is that you can go and be in industry eight hours a day and then come home and maintain your cultural practices. And because you weren't also able to do it at work doesn't mean it's any less important or any less possible to keep your culture alive. Every person that you bring up that goes eight hours a day to a normal job, yeah, you don't have to make your culture your work. But if you do, that culture is more prevalent than it is otherwise. So I'm not sure. I, I think that there can be an argument made, even if it's a slightly watered down version of it, that tourism does help A, maintain culture in the place of origin, and then also B, spread that culture throughout the world. And like we said at the beginning of the episode, these things are all related. So when we talk about culture and, and a connection that people around the world or an affinity they might feel with a Hawaiian culture, then we look at economics they're more likely to contribute economically to a place where they feel familiar culturally. Independent of whether or not there's a cultural benefit to having tourism or the people themselves who, who live in those cultures, there are very poorly behaved tourists that while they may put their dollars into the communities and that might help some people some of the time, they tend to be pretty destructive when they behave with such degrees of disrespect. Specifically, Bali is having a horrible time with tourism. Tourists are extremely disrespectful to culturally significant and sacred locations, uh, to the point now that Bali is looking at reducing how many people can travel there, considering a full motorbike ban for tourists, which I think a lot of people will be pretty upset about. Um, and they've even deported some people who've gone really overboard with their bad behavior. Yeah, this is like our English, not American, English guy that was writing his name on the Coliseum. Not saying that there haven't been probably hundreds of Americans that have done the same thing, but. I think at a bare minimum, and there's no way we could ever mandate this, but at a bare minimum, if you're going to be a tourist somewhere, you should strive to not be actively destructive. But that's another issue in Hawaii as well, is people are going and doing snorkeling and they're told not to touch the coral and you bet they're fucking touching the coral. That was one of the things that struck me in, in Turkey. When you visit Hagia Sophia, it's still a working mosque. So people still pray there and worship there. It's also a major tourist destination. And you're supposed to cover your head if you're a female. A whole nother issue, not trying to get into that, but that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to take your shoes off. And there was like no security, no real oversight to speak of. You had kids running around all over the place. You had people kind of doing whatever they wanted inside of this church. And yeah, it did, it did strike me for such an important place of worship culturally to be pretty disrespectful the way it was treated. And it makes you wonder how long it's going to last as tourists are able to just like etch their names into stuff or et cetera. If people would like to hear a story about how I was disrespectful, in Paris at the Arc de Triomphe. We will put that on Twitter and Facebook. We're at Indubitably Pod in both locations. And trust me, it's a humiliating story. And I deeply apologize to the entire country of France. <laughs> all right. So cu culture, all of these are complicated. Culture, economy, there's certainly things that seem like very obvious benefits to tourism. There's certainly things that seem like very obvious detriments to tourism. Maybe one that's a little bit more clear cut is our last topic, and that is the environmental impact. So are you going to rip into me about cruise ships now? Well, I'm just going to say that anybody who happens to be on cruise ships, whoever that might be, tourism accounts for 8% of global greenhouse gases, predominantly from the transportation related to it, planes, cruise ships, etc. So I don't know if that applies to you or not, Kelly, but if it does, 8% of global greenhouse gas. I refuse to apologize for taking a cruise. There were a lot of weird things happening in my life at the time, and I needed it. Regardless of uh, cruise ship and individual uh, environmental footprints, 
tourism does, as we've said, drive development. In order to attract visitors, there's pressure to build infrastructure uh, to make the experience more luxurious. Sometimes that infrastructure can be good, hospitals, roads, etc., for the well-being of the people. Other times it could just be bougie for bougie's sake. And anytime you undertake development like that, you are going to be eating into the environment. A more recent behavior that some people who engage in tourism employ is ecotourism, specifically trying to travel with with some sort of consciousness about the environmental impact of their travel and seeking a way to make the world a better place or the destination that they are traveling to a better place. So not only having a neutral impact, but a beneficial one to maybe like fragile ecosystems or areas that are experiencing climate related issues. But again, if it's tourism and it's not a volunteer trip, it's not like a mission trip or joining the Peace Corps, the tourism part of ecotourism heavily implies that people are going to seek some form of enjoyment out of it. And so they're seeking destinations that are going to be pleasurable and probably look really good on Instagram. And that raises some internal conflicts about whether or not ecotourism is actually for the benefit of the locations that they visit. Right. Basically, any tourist destination has to have something special about it. Uh, Maybe that's the food, maybe that's the culture, maybe it's the architecture, or maybe it's the environment, beaches, jungles, forests, etc. And and for the latter of those things, it's got to be really tough to balance. Yes, you are bringing people there specifically for the environment. So obviously, you can't screw it up too much. But at the same time, if you want to make money off of those people, you do have to develop that area at least to a certain degree. And I I think it would be hard to say that these destinations always get that balance right. Furthermore, ecotourism is not, to my knowledge, a government term, doesn't have a specific definition or standards it has to meet. So going to a place that appears to have some sort of ecological need for your tourism and you somehow benefit could be greenwashing um, at at best or actively destructive to the place that you visit at, at worst. But just like culture, there's an idea here of even if we develop into the environment a bit, what would the environment look like without tourism, right? In the United States, for example, how hard is it to maintain national parks if they aren't heavily visited by tourists. We got all sorts of national parks around the country. And the ones that aren't popular are the first ones on the chopping block when we need to find oil somewhere or when somebody has to develop the land for some industry. So even though places that are popular as tourist destinations for the beauty of the environment, even though that brings with it some destructive infrastructure, maybe on a whole, it's allowing the environment to still exist. And then how many times today is Kelly going to say double-edged sword? We need tourism in these places to make sure that they are valued enough to be protected overall, but we have to compromise at least a little bit on their overall environmental integrity in order to do so. There's no perfect solution. Some of the things we talk about seem very black or white. Is this thing good? Is this thing bad? Should we ban it? Should we allow it? But In the case of tourism, I think that the solution probably lies somewhere in the middle. Again, we asked the question earlier, how do we garner the benefits of tourism? Because there certainly are some, while avoiding the detriments of it, avoiding people going to Hawaii in a time of crisis, avoid culture being watered down to the point that it's it's so diluted that it basically doesn't exist anymore, avoid building infrastructure to the point that the environment that you went there to see is such a small microcosm of what it used to be. How do we get all the good with none of the bad, Kelly? Well, we never will. Unacceptable. (laughs) Well, I think a big answer is if we think a little bit about what we're trying to get out of tourism, and that impacts so much as to how we behave as tourists, where we pick our destinations, how we get there, what money we spend on what 
and how many cultural artifacts we desecrate in the process. What are we trying to get out of tourism? We need a break a lot of the times. And honestly, like my impending trip to New York, literally, I'm looking forward to the times that I'll be on the subway as quiet time I get with my Kindle. And it's like, I could just get Kindle time at home. But there's a bigger reason I want to go to New York rather than just, you know, just having time. And that is to experience stuff that I don't get to experience on a day-to-day basis. So are there ways to get the rest, um, get the enjoyment, get the change of your perspective that don't actively harm others at minimum? And that comes to, I guess, changing our individual behaviors and our individual mindsets with how we approach tourism. So it's not necessarily like we have to eradicate tourism and put in a replacement. What if we just started to change our behaviors as tourists altogether? We have our actions. And what about governments? We've listed so far some of the actions that governments are taking to try to limit the impact of tourism. What are some examples of what governments can do policy-wise or regulation-wise to try and achieve this balance? Things that you've already mentioned when it comes to raising taxes or taxing industries that so far haven't really been uh, subject to those taxes, or what I suggested, which is uh, more equitable minimum wages in the areas where there are tourist industries. But they can also put more regulations on the industry as a whole, cap how many rooms a hotel can build cap how many flights can come in every day on a specific airline or in a specific airport. They have the means to exercise a lot more control than they have been. And I think that the reason they haven't done so before is they have encouraged tourism at the expense of all other values because the money has been good. We talk about like bubbles. In certain industries, the housing bubble, the stock market bubble, maybe we've experienced a tourism bubble where countries have been trying to just get as much money out of it as possible. And now they're reaching the point where they realize they've stretched too far. That bubble has burst and now we're seeing the negative repercussions of it. So governments are being more diligent about, okay, it's not just let's cram as many people into the streets of Venice as possible. It's not let's see how many cruise ships we can fit into our harbor. We do need to start putting limits on the number of people, the way they get here, how they act when they're here, how much we can charge for things like Airbnb, etc. So maybe we can find a good balance to allow tourism without letting it go too far and, and create too much of disparity between the corporations and owners that pocket the majority of that $18 billion, for example, in Hawaii, and the normal people who are out on the street watching their environment be destroyed and their culture be ransacked? At a minimum, all of these other things that we've been talking about seem super idealistic. Some of them might be more possible than the others. But I think the big emphasis that we should be reiterating right now is that if you do nothing else as a tourist in the near term, as long as people are expressing a need for you to stay away from Hawaii, you must stay away from Hawaii. And don't carve your name into the Coliseum. I'm not as bothered by that. Should I be more bothered by that? I don't know. (laughs) I'm curious at the end of this discussion for our listeners. If any of you have vacations planned, where those vacations might be, do you think that your presence in those destinations would be a positive or a negative thing? And potentially, how might you temper that effect? I I think it'd be an interesting discussion to have. We've talked about it very generally, but to hear some of the specific places that you might be going to, or maybe even more interestingly, if you happen to live in a popular tourist destination, a tourist hotspot how you feel tourism has either helped or hindered you know, your life, your economy, your culture, etc. What about you, Kelly? Do you have any plans to leave your condo anytime soon? Yes. Uh, I have put off some travel for a very long time, thanks to the pandemic, and I'm finally going to go on a trip, and I'll be in the Bay Area. 
And I will then go to New York City. And most of the stuff I will do in New York City is spending the full day at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, and then I haven't figured out too much of what else I'm going to do. But I'm definitely going to enjoy some artifacts that only got there because of colonialism. And then I'm going to have to have a really big discussion with myself afterwards about how I feel about that. Mm. And that's the uh, culture that New York City apparently has, according to you. Oh, if we want to talk about the New York culture I hope to experience, definitely go into a few drag bars. <laughs> there you go. Just make sure you don't cross the street at the wrong time, because then you'll get a full dose of New York culture. Yeah, I'm fine. I've been there before. Watch where the fuck you're walking. <laughs> that's my that's my New York culture. Okay. Get out of the fucking road. Mm-hmm. <laughs>